0: Good evening. Good evening. Please open your Bibles to the book of Malachi, the only minor prophet that anyone can find. Go to Matthew and go back a page. I'm so impressed that you guys have it memorized. That's excellent. Uh, thank you for having me back. It is always a privilege to preach in this pulpit. I first preached in this pulpit, I learned to preach in this pulpit. I <coughs> preached often poorly in this pulpit. Uh, I'm glad to get to preach from this pulpit again this evening, um, prayerfully, not poorly. So please. Pray for me. There's always a million things that I want to say to you guys in greeting and gratitude, but time is always short, and I am always long, so I simply want to say that we love you guys. We are so thankful for you. Please never change this pulpit. Um, I want to be here uh, preaching uh, once a year, always, Um, but uh, I want to get to work. Uh, I want to get to worship, for that is why we are here. It is appropriate that this is the last Wednesday worship of the summer. And as I am too good to make the same joke twice and have already used before in this pulpit the Vanessa Williams 1992 Save the Best for Last joke, I will not make that joke again. I won't do it. <clears throat> but it does fit, not for the preacher, but for the book. As this is the last Wednesday worship, it is fitting that we end this summer with a book that is about worship. I'm very thankful that you have been studying through this least looked at section of the least looked at Testament of the Bible. You probably know this well by now, but that Old Testament generally breaks down into three parts, history, poetry, we are in the prophecy, 17 books, five books, 17 books, history deals with the History of God's dealings with his people, the poetry or the wisdom literature uh, gives us sort of an intimate look into a relationship with that Lord, what it means to follow him, what it means to worship him and to be loved by him. And then the prophecy is generally God confronting his people in their folly and idolatry and calling his people to repent and return to him, to return to the true and right and life giving worship of him. That is also what we have here in Malachi. And that, I would argue, is a large part of what the church most needs today. That second section of the Old Testament, that poetry, the wisdom, largely about the worship of God. This is probably one of those things that you're not supposed to say in the pulpit. But, oh well, sometimes I really hate the Psalms. I really do. I want to clarify what I mean By that, because I truly love the Psalms, I spend time daily in the Psalms, and I believe that you should too. They are beautiful and profound and life-giving, but the more that I actually read the Psalms, the more that I really pay attention to the Psalms, the more I read things like Psalm 16. Psalm 16 has just been messing with me lately. I have no good apart from you. I have set the Lord always... Before me. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. How frequently am I seeking those things elsewhere? Or I read Psalm 41: As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Psalm 63, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land. And on and on and on we could go. And as I go on and continue to read, the more I am confronted with the gulf between myself and the psalmist, aware then also of the infinite gulf between the psalmist and the Lord, I am then confronted with the even more infinite gulf between myself and the Lord. And I'm convicted, sometimes saddened, hopefully repentant, of my often so unloving worship, which is entirely out of line with the goodness and glory of the unchanging God. And that's exactly what this book is about. If you're a note taker, I have titled this sermon Unloving Worship and the Unchanging God. Unloving Worship and the Unchanging God. That's the problem that Malachi is ultimately confronting. And that is a problem that still plagues many of us today. I picked up the idea from Martin Lloyd-Jones a while back and I haven't been able to shake it, but he argues, and I was struck by this, that the basic trouble with most of us is that we simply have never truly realized what it actually means to be a Christian. If only we could understand that, our identity, our position, our privilege, the glorious inheritance we have, our unshakable, eternal, glorious hope, if we could understand what we actually are in Christ, everything would change. And so I would argue that at the root of our failure to truly realize what it means to be a Christian is first a failure to truly realize who this God that we claim to worship truly is. And I hope that Malachi can help us with that this evening. The problem that Malachi addresses is our problem. God is not the problem. God is never the problem. Man is. We are. You are the problem. Unlike many of the other prophets, Malachi has nothing to say to the nations. We are very concerned with out there sometimes. Malachi says nothing about out there. His concern is solely with Israel, entirely with those of us in here. Malachi is worried about our worship. How is your worship? Are you bored with the Lord? Do you ever consider that question? Are you bored with the Lord? Are you weary of worship? Let's let God's messenger here confront, challenge, convict, and ultimately, I pray, comfort us this evening. For he writes in a time of disillusionment, discontent, disappointment, and discouragement. The people have forgotten the love of God. They have focused entirely on their present difficult circumstances. They have slipped into unthinking, unfeeling, ungrateful worship. Maybe some of us in this room find us in a similar time. We need renewal, revival, and reformation, and Malachi can help us. There's not a whole lot of literary structure to this book. We'll get into that. The subjects he addresses sometimes just feel kind of thrown together haphazardly. We know they're not. This is the work of a mind that is greater than ours, infinitely greater than ours. But the big idea, the book itself is clear, simple, and direct, but it doesn't come across as the most organized book, which is trouble for you, as I am not the most organized preacher. So I ask you to bear with me. Uh, I gave up coming up with some brilliant, comprehensive outline. We're going to work through three big ideas that will hopefully help give us a sufficient overview of this book. Malachi is a book uniquely focused on the Lord. So I want us to start first by looking at point number one, the unchangeable God. Chapter three, verse six is the most important verse in this book. It is a very important verse for your life. So let's start there. And if we can see the greatness of God in point one, we'll then be ready to feel the weight of the worship failure in point two, as we'll consider the unloving worship of the people And then we're going to close with God's loving response to our unloving response, which is his unfailing messenger. So unchanging God, unloving worship, unfailing messenger, or God, man, Christ. And then we'll see the response. There's your gospel outline. That's the book of Malachi. Uh, But if you would, we desperately need help. Um, So please bow with me and let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we have just sung that you are our helper, and we ask that you would be our help now, in this evening. Father, we often think of you as helper only in the big things and in the crisis moments and when we really finally actually realize that we need help. But Father, we always need help, and we are entirely dependent upon you for everything. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Father, preaching is difficult. Listening to preaching is difficult. Father, please help us. I ask that you would work through your word. I ask that you would move me aside. I pray that you would set aside any concerns for my own glory. That my focus would be entirely on your glory and the good of your people. Father, we see much of ourselves if we're honest as we look at this difficult book. So I pray that you would use this word to challenge us. I pray to encourage us by pointing us to your son. Father, I want to worship you better. I want to worship you more and more in accordance with with who you are in your greatness and in your glory. Father, you do that through means. You do that through your word. Um, So we ask that your spirit would work now in this time through your word. Help us to be attentive to that word, receptive to it. Help the preaching and hearing of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Point number one, we start with the unchanging God. Everything always starts with the unchanging God. It is true, the line that I'm sure that you've heard before, that what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. If we have a worship problem, this is the root of that problem. This is the people's problem that Malachi addresses. Uh, Look at the book. Uh, You need it open. A few quick introductory remarks, who, when, and what. In 1 1, we see the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now that word oracle, you've probably already heard, literally means burden, as the King James translates it. You saw this word last week in the book of Zechariah. Nahum and Habakkuk opened the same way. This is a weight word. There is an urgency to this message from this messenger. And if you track the footnote down to the bottom of the page, you see that that's what the name Malachi literally means. In the Hebrew, Malachi means my messenger. And we know nothing else about this Malachi. This is the prophet we know the least about. Uh, So much so that many think that Malachi is not a personal name, but a title. Calvin thought that Malachi was Ezra. We don't know for sure, but every other prophet is named. So I think it is safe to assume that Malachi is the personal name of this prophet as well. But because we don't know anything about the man, the book is more difficult to date. There are details that help us, and most believe that the book was written somewhere after 450 BC, probably between 450 and 420. So we have jumped ahead about 100 years since last week, and since the book of Zechariah. The people have returned from exile, the temple has been rebuilt, the walls have been restored, worship has been reinstituted, and yet... The people are not impressed. The people are not satisfied. They look around at their circumstances, still less than idea. The Persians still are over them. Things are not going as they wish. They're small, they're insignificant, and they are disappointed. And that disappointment works itself out in their worship. This is a people characterized by disillusionment, discouragement, and doubt. And I am confident that if we all closed our eyes and no one was actually looking and we asked the question, who in here is characterized this evening by disillusionment, discouragement and doubt, we would see a number of hands go up. What word does this messenger have for us? Well, the first thing that we see is that it is a word of the Lord. This is a word from the Lord. And that in and of itself gives this word infinite and eternal weight. We should never get over the fact that God speaks. The first thing we learn about God in the scriptures is that he exists and that he speaks. And that when he speaks, everything happens. His speaking is unimaginably powerful. He speaks reality into existence. We literally live in a world of words. And so we must give these words the attention that their source and their power demand. We'll consider the complicated structure of the book in point two, but the main thing that I want you to notice rhetorically, and by rhetorically I mean kind of how the book is written, how Malachi intends to convey his point, is that Malachi is the most personal of all the prophets. And by personal, I'm not talking in reference to the person of Malachi, but personal in reference to the person of God. We have 55 verses in front of us. And in 47 of those 55, we have God speaking in the first person. I. You see it in the second verse. Look at the second verse. I have loved you, says the Lord. And again and again and again throughout this book, we read I, I, I. I, the burden of the book is the speaking Yahweh. This is a book uniquely focused on the person of God, personally and persistently speaking to his people. And what does he say? What is the focus of his speaking? Well, ultimately, the focus is himself. Let's start in the middle of the book. Contra Maria, also a very good place to start. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. I want to get you this verse before I lose you. Chapter 3, verse 6. It's late. We're tired. Let's wake up. This is the most important verse in the book. You get this verse and your time will have been well spent. Notice again the first person. Note the movement from first person to second person, from I, God, to you, man. That's the order. That's always the order. You could argue that sin is the shifting of that order. Sin is living our life in the first person. I, 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 me, me, me. When reality is God in the first person. Because look at who he is. Chapter 3, verse 6. For I, the Lord, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. There's so much in that one verse, just 10 words. In the Hebrew, we could spend our lives staring into the truths contained in those 10 words. Uh, There's much more in this book about who this God is, but from that verse and the rest of the book, I want to draw your attention to three big truths that reveal to us who this God is and what he is like. This is the God with whom you must deal, the God to whom your worship is meant to be a right response. What is he like? Who is he? Three things. He is Yahweh. That means he is the covenant God. We're going to talk about covenant. He does not change. He is the unchanging God. And you are not consumed. He is the compassionate God. Covenant, unchanging, compassionate, and they are all intimately connected. First, let's start with covenant. Covenant is one of the main themes of this book. These people have a covenant problem which is a huge problem because covenant is everything. Covenant is about relationship. Covenant is an agreement. It's an arrangement, the goal of which is relationship or communion. When you think covenant, just think communion. Covenant is about communion with the triune God himself. But even more than that, better than that, covenant is about committed communion. It is the presence of God. It is the promised presence of God. And we just don't give enough attention to covenant anymore. If you struggle to remember what it is about, just come back to the core covenant principle repeated throughout the scriptures. I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's covenant. And covenant is how that can happen. It is how we sinful people of death can be right with and in fellowship with the holy God of life. Covenant. And Yahweh, you know that when you see the Lord there in all capital letters, that's not the word Lord. That's God's personal covenant name. He is Yahweh, the covenant-making God, the personal God of the covenant. But that raises a problem for us. It's the problem that Malachi addresses. If God is a covenant making God, that's bad news for us for we are a covenant breaking people. You may not think that this is a big deal. God thinks that this is a very big deal. Look at a few spots where this is brought out. Look at chapter 2 verse 4. Chapter 2 verse 4. God there talks about his covenant with Levi. We don't know as much about this covenant, God's arrangement with the priesthood, but look at what this covenant was ultimately about in verse 5. Why does God give covenants? What are covenants for? Chapter 2, verse 5. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. So good. We should just Again, we should, this whole overview idea is unfair. We should stop right there again with that verse, covenant of life and peace. But note simply that it's about life and peace. God's covenant is always about life and peace. God's covenant is never the problem. We are always the problem. And note also how that covenant that is about life and peace is also about the fear of the Lord. And those two things are not opposed to each other. Those two things are intimately wed together. But look at verse 8. There we read that they have corrupted the covenant. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. There we read the terminology of profaning the covenant. Look at verse 14. There is a horizontal aspect to this as well. Our vertical dealings with the Lord always have horizontal effects on others. You think that your sin is not affecting other people. It's affecting other people. Vertical relationship always affects horizontal relationship. We'll look at this in a moment. But many of the men have been faithless to their wives, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Our brother here in the back, Sam, is getting married in two weeks. Teresa's coming up soon. You guys are entering into an unbreakable covenant. And there's nothing more beautiful, and there's nothing more important, and there's nothing more serious. These people were breaking that covenant. That's what we do. What hope there is uh, is there then for us? Well, our only hope is that this God is not only the covenant making God, but also the covenant keeping God. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. A little hint of the glorious end. Middle of the verse. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold... He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Again, another great verse. There are actually three messengers in Malachi. I will leave you in suspense. Who could this messenger be? Again, we, we know uh, who it could only be. But for now, note that he's the messenger of the covenant. We too little think of Christ as the Christ of the covenants. But the messenger of the covenant is coming. And his coming has something to do with covenant. So there's, there's the hope. Here is God doing something about our covenant breaking problem. And ultimately, the reason for that something, the guaranteed safe and secure, unshakable confidence we have, is rooted in the fact that the covenant God is also the unchanging God. Back to 3 6. That's the big idea of 3 6. You could argue that that's the big idea of this book. I, the Lord, do not change. And you, the Christian, are entirely dependent on the fact that he, the Lord, does not change. And that means that you, the Christian, should desire and delight to learn and live in light of the doctrine of the immutability of God. It seems like, you look at the commentaries, uh, newer ones, this is more the case. It seems that it's increasingly become cool to argue that this verse is not about the doctrine of the immutability of God that's probably due to the fact that it's increasingly become cool to argue against the doctrine of the immutability of God in its entirety. Please don't do that. Please don't make the dangerous mistake just because everyone else is making it. Our only hope is that this God is the immutable God. What does that mean? It just means unchangeable. That's all. We just like fancy, obnoxious words to impress people. It just means unchanging. The Latin mutare means to change. To mutate is to change. We change constantly. We are change. Life is change. God is not. God does not change ever. And the gospel is entirely dependent upon that fact. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. James 1.17, with God there is no variation or shadow due to change. God does not change because he is, period. He is, I am. And here's the connection between unchangeable and covenant. This is what God's name means. Yahweh, it seems, is based off of the verb to be. He is, I am, who I am. And if he is, I am, if he is the God revealed in the scriptures, the perfect God. None of us would want to argue against the perfection of the person of God, right? None of us would want to argue that, that God is perfect. His perfection requires his unchangeableness, Were he to change for the better, that would mean he was not perfect previously. Were he to change for the worse, maybe he was perfect, but he's obviously not anymore. Either an imperfection is being lost or a perfection is being added. So change by definition is movement from better to worse or worse to better, all of which is impossible for the perfect God. That's right. And if he is moving from anything, from one thing to the other, better to worse, then he cannot be eternally good. And if he is not eternally good, then surely he cannot be God. Have I, have I lost you yet? <clears throat> Big idea. For God to be God, he must be unchanging. And the good news is that he is. He is being without becoming. He is being. We are becoming. We are constant change. I can't even keep my voice the same. I'm losing my voice already. Uh, We are constant change. He is consistent perfection, and our hope rests entirely on this. Our hope rests on the perfect person of God. One of the main things that we need to learn about God these days is this simple truth. God is not like us. He He is not like us. We are great at uh, seeking to create and craft him into our own image. We all of us somewhat think that, you know, he's, he's kind of like us, but, you know, just a little, I mean, he's a little better, right? He's God, but he generally, he's kind of like us. Wrong. He is God. He is entirely other. We used to talk about the incomprehensibility God. He is great and He is rightly concerned to be known as such. He brings us out a lot in this book. Look back at chapter 1, verse 5. God says to the people, You shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Look at chapter 1, verse 11. My name will be great among the nations. Twice in one verse, for my name will be. Great among the nations. One more, look at 114. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. You see, God is incomprehensibly great, and he is greatly concerned to be known as such. And it is because we so often do not know him as such that we struggle to rightly respond to him in worthy worship. And why we're just not simply constantly overcome with awe. our worship problem starts with our knowledge problem do you know this god for for this is what you were created for this is life according to jesus in john 17 3 this is eternal life that they know you which must of course include wanting to know about god it has to start there. It gladly starts there for the Christian. For this God is so great that as we come to know him by his grace, we, we love and long to know him more and more and more. Do you? The, uh, uh, the first paragraph of the second chapter of our confession, uh, we, we just, it's just stolen from the Westminster Confession. It's arguably one of the greatest paragraphs ever penned, not directly under the inspiration of, of the Lord I would just want you I'm just going to read this to you because this is, we just don't talk like this anymore we don't think about this anymore who is this God that we claim to love and worship Here's what the Westminster or the 1689 says the Lord our God is but one only living and true God whose subsistence is in and of himself infinite in being and perfection whose essence cannot be comprehended by any. But himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only has immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way, infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things together according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory." Most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. The rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. That's our God. That is a brilliant and beautiful summary of our God. Because it's... Like, does that excite you yes. at all? Like, what, what do you get excited about? How many of you are checking the MET score right now? Like, honestly, what what is it that you really get passionate? I want to kind of ask, but don't tell me. I don't want to know. Um, but, but no, but consider. Like, I'm really having to consider right now. What truly gets me excited? What gets me up? What am I finding the most joy in? What do I most love and long for? Does this something like that get you going just a little bit, desirous to know uh, this big, glorious God a little bit better? Do you know what it means when we sing immortal, invisible, God only wise? Or when we confess God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth? The Church, says God is great. He is not like us. He is the infinite God, the transcendent God, the unchanging God. God is not like us. But we don't stop there. Malachi doesn't start there. It's quite significant how Malachi starts. Keep everything in mind of what we've just talked about, this God and who he is. And go back to chapter 1, verse 2. The first thing that God says, I have loved you says this, Lord, it is of great significance and great comfort that the first word of these last words in the Old Testament is love. The first verb of this book is love. If you are the Lord's, then his first word to you is love. Chapter 3, verse 6 again, For I, the Lord, that's covenant, do not change, that's unchanging, therefore, right, so this follows from those two things, therefore, children of Jacob, you are not consumed. That's compassion. God is not like us. Oh, but he loves us. The unchanging God is also the compassionate God. The God who loves his people with an unflagging, unfailing, unceasing, unwavering, unrelenting, unyielding, unchanging love. See, the love of the perfect person must be a perfect love. And since love, by definition, seeks the good of the loved, and communion with the perfect person, by definition, must be the highest good. Then we have here the infallible unchangeable guarantee that God will give you the thing that you most need that will he will bring about the thing that will bring about your ultimate eternal good which is reconciliation and restoration to relationship with him he who is light and life he Psalm 16 again in whose presence there is fullness of joy at his right hand are ple- pleasures Forevermore. So if, I could, if I could just believe that one verse, if I could actually truly believe that one verse, it would change everything. Just that one verse. He, if he is the unchanging covenant God of compassion, then he is here promising you full joy and forever pleasure. He is promising you everything. The God, this God, the God of all creation, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the one in whom somehow all things hold together reality itself This transcendent, unchangeable God, not like you, promises you that he is working for your infinite, eternal good. In church, what a word! What a word from the Lord to us! What a God this God is! And yet, and yet, so often, as in Malachi, instead of worship, there is weariness. And it is all of this that we've just discussed. It is the indescribable greatness of the one with whom we are dealing tonight that makes such a response to him, such an offense to him. He is the unchanging covenant God of compassion. How are you responding to him? Point number two. Let's consider the unloving worship. Do not panic Like the unchanging God, I am an unchanging preacher. First point is always longer than the other points. Unloving worship. I didn't know what to title this point. I jumped around. I originally had unthinking worship. I still think maybe I should have gone with that. Our root problem is that we do not know God for who and what he is. Thinking just, it just gets a bad rap today, and I think that makes no sense. I don't, and I'm reading it in Christian books, too, and it doesn't make any sense. The Bible is all about our thinking. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Think about these things. Set your mind upon the things of God. Love the Lord your God with all your mind. Think. Again, it's of great significance that God has given to us a book. He is the speaking God who reveals himself through words which work through minds. It is our failure to think that results in our failure to love. Don't listen to anyone who tries to divorce these things. But we don't like to think about thinking, so I went with unloving worship. What is worship? It's simply the right response of the creature to the creator. We have now seen the greatness of God. Well, the main words for worship in both Hebrew and Greek are low words. They mean to get to get low, to, to bow down. He is high, we are low. He is great, we are not. Worship is acknowledging that and responding accordingly. Worship is recognizing the infinite worth of God and subscribing that worth to him with all that we are and all that we think and say and do. The worship this evening has been wonderful. We have a wonderful music leader here with Dan. The singing has been great. The praying, the preaching, the eating, the fellowshipping, hopefully all of these things are done in reference to the Lord, in worship to him. What is the infinite and eternal God worth? Sounds silly when you put it like that. Because it's everything, of course. How should we respond to the infinite and eternal God With everything, of course. That's what worship is. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship is the glad response of honor and love directed toward the good God of glory, who is worthy of everything. I preach from John 12 on Sunday. Mary dumps out the equivalent of, we don't know, something like $50,000 worth of perfume on the feet of Jesus in like a minute. And Judas, and probably many of us, if we're honest, we think, what a waste. And Jesus says, what worship. Mary has recognized the infinite value of Christ and has sought as appropriately as she can to respond. $50,000. And it doesn't even come close to his worth. But her beautiful, extravagant response is her loving attempt to worship her loving Lord. What is your response to this Lord like? How are you responding to this unchanging, covenant, compassionate God? Not just right now, tomorrow morning, when you're sick, when your sermon's not going as well as you like because you can't talk because you're losing your voice and you're frustrated, Uh, uh, to work tomorrow, to relationship issues. How are you responding to the Lord in the midst of all of those things? That is what Malachi is addressing. And don't forget that these are God's last words to his people for over 400 years, and they're words about worship. They're words about his worth and our worship, and the often great gap between the two, Malachi is striking at the heart of nominal, easy, unthinking, unfeeling, cold, selfish religion that is really concerned more with me than with God. You see, sin doesn't always look like severe wickedness. Sometimes it just looks like simple weariness. And it is masterful, the way that Malachi goes about drawing this out. We all know, right? We all know that we talk to ourselves, right? We all are always talking to ourselves. We're all crazy. We all talk to ourselves. And so we're all, in a sense, the most influential person in our own lives because ours is the one voice that we hear the most. So so what are you saying to yourself, about yourself, about the Lord? What is your self-talk like? Well, what Malachi does here in this short book, and it's brilliantly done, is he takes the thoughts and attitudes of the people and then he puts them on paper into words and in so doing he reveals to the people reveals to us our true thoughts and attitudes who we really are and what we often really believe and it isn't pretty yeah I think it's unlikely that the people are actually voicing many of the words of complaint that we are about to read they like us were probably not dumb enough to give voice to their deepest and darkest doubts. But let us not forget who this Lord is. Acts 15.8, God knows the heart. Psalm 44.21, he knows the secrets of the heart. Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. We should take very seriously the fact, the omniscience of God. We should seek to live our lives more and more in light of the omniscience God, God knows your heart, which is you know. It's it's, your heart is it's you. It's your core. It's your inner person. Your heart is not where you get the feels, right? I like to make the joke that if you feel something in your heart, you should call nine one (laughs) one immediately, right? Because you may be having a heart attack. Scripture does not use the word heart like we use the word heart. Your heart is you. It is the seat of your thinking and you're feeling, and you're willing. In Scripture, the heart really is the mind. It just, it just is. And God knows it better than you know it. We can fool one another. We cannot fool him. We can put on a good worship show before the face of one another, not before his all-knowing, all-seeing face. He knows your heart. He knows my heart. And he knows Israel's heart. That's what he's dealing with here. He is wearied. By their weariness in worship. Look over the text. I'll do this very briefly. I don't know how to do this well. It's impossible. Brief big picture overview to draw this out. Malachi structures his book, as everyone will say, in a series of six disputations. We don't use that word. We know what a dispute is it's it's a disagreement. Malachi is a series of arguments or debates. There is a proposition, and then there is opposition. Throughout the book, I, God, will make an accusation or some sort of affirmation. Then we, Israel, will then make an objection, and then God will support his argument, or I went with confirmation. Accusation, objection, confirmation. And I chose confirmation just so we could have the acronym AOC for fun. I just thought that would be fun. Accusation. Accusation. Objection, confirmation. All right. You're awake. That's good. All right. Look at the first example of this. We'll walk through the first one. There are six of these. The first is chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Look at verse 2. We haven't yet read past the first phrase. This is insane. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, How have you loved us? So there's the affirmation or accusation, followed by the objection. I can just consider. pause there. Many of you know me. My wife just walked out, so I can talk about it. Um, many of you know me and my wife, and thus you know that she is better than me in every way. I read more, and I can maybe beat her in a race. That's it. <clears throat> uh, they, they talk about there being a reacher and a settler in every relationship. I am very much the reacher, right? She is high. I am low. So imagine the absurdity, then. Of her coming to me, our thirteenth anniversary is coming up. And her saying to me, I have loved you. My response. Uh hold on. How? How have you loved me? Melissa. Right, you would rightly be offended. She's loved me in every way. Simply by putting up with me. Simply by having my back. Birthing, nursing, raising, educating my five girls, and just on and on and on, I could go. So for my response to that, to be, "Wait, how have you loved me?" Yeah, I can't even imagine. the offense that that would be. And it's that that colors this whole book. God starts off with his infinitely better love. His affirmation of his love for his people, for you. And they start off with a questioning of his love. How have you loved me? That's their response. God then goes to give on his supporting evidence. It's his discriminating, electing, saving love. We don't have time to look at it in detail. Uh, Thus you have the pattern of the book. Accusation, objection, confirmation. That's the section one. Section two. Begins in verse 6, chapter 1, verse 6, to chapter 2, verse 9, where God deals primarily with the priests, the ones who are supposed to be leading and facilitating worship. Look at verse 6. Where is my honor? Where is my fear? O priests who despised my name. But you say, well, how have we despised your name? And then God will go on to rebuke them for their pitiful, polluted, offerings right if worship is about responding to the lord if it's about recognizing his infinite worth and responding accordingly they're not worshiping him but offending him we parked in front of two squished squirrels out on the road over here here's just some squirrels i don't know why this is off the top of my head my love, my wife loves flowers if instead of flowers I like hey i i found these found these squirrels here here you go That's what what they're doing. Something's so much worse. Here's what we think of you, Lord. Here is our garbage. Then in the third section, chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, God turns from the priests to deal with the people. We tend to make this section about marriage and divorce. It, It is, but it's first, verse 10, it's about their covenant breaking. The divorce is the fruit of the root issue. Why are they divorcing their wives? You'll sometimes read and hear people say that Israel no longer had an idolatry problem after the exile. I don't think that's correct. Verse 11, look at verse 11. Judah has married the daughter of a foreign god. I don't think the guys are just running around leaving their wives for like a younger, cuter Jewish girl. In verse 15, God emphasizes his desire for godly offspring. And most likely, they were divorcing their wives to marry foreign wives. That's the issue that Ezra deals with at this similar time. The problem is not that the women are foreign, of course, we know that. The problem is that they are pagan. The people then are doing this in direct disobedience to God's good law and probably in an attempt to curry favor with the surrounding nations or with the surrounding false gods. This is idolatry. Marriage is about worship. And so in divorcing their wives for others, they are clearly demonstrating what they really worship. The fourth disputation, chapter 2, verse 17 to chapter 3, verse 5. Look at verse 17 of chapter 2. Oh, may this never be true of us. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how? How have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them, or by asking, Where is the God of justice? Hey, do you see what they're saying there? Do you, are you tracking with their accusation? Our, again, first of all, our words can weary the Lord, our worship can weary the Lord. Let's not forget that. And these are strong words on their part. They're questioning God's justice, His righteousness, His rightness. They're saying, Hey, the evil are good in your sight, Lord. In other words, you are evil. You, you love the wicked. Where are you, God of justice? You, you are not just." Yet yeah, we'd never say such a thing. We're not out loud, at least. But how frequently are the thoughts of our hearts a questioning of God's justice and rightness? God, We're doing this every time we complain. Every time we look at the circumstances around us and grumble, "Well, this is not right, this is not fair. We believe in the absolute sovereignty of God, right? Who declares the end from the beginning. Those thoughts then are directed against him. You are not right. You are not fair. It is not a particularly worshipful response. Disputation 5, chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. It's summed up in verse 8. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? we're, We're making the case. We're trying to emphasize that worship is concerned with the whole of our lives. Our money is a pretty significant part of those lives. You are either worshiping with your money or you are worshiping your money. Jesus is pretty clear. You cannot serve them both. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How we use our money not only reveals our hearts, but it leads our hearts. Check your checkbook. I can know you fairly well just by looking at your spending. I give to my church. We support a couple of missionaries. And basically all of my money goes to my six ladies. And then the few pennies that I have left, I spend on good food, books, and running shoes. That's it. That's it. That's not a bad summary of who I am and what I care about just from my spending. Family, church, missions, food, books, running. What is your money revealing about you? About what you worship? Worship with your money. Sixth and final disputation, 313 to the end. 217, we had weary words. 313, we have hard words. Objection, how have we spoken against you? Look at 314. You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge? or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. Those are hard words indeed. Here is their worship, their unloving worship. Worship is our response to God. Their response is it is vain to serve God. Worship is about worth. God is infinitely worth e. Their response to God's worth, what profit is there in worshiping him? Is it worth it? That's what they're asking. Is, is he worth it? Yeah, that really is the question. That's the question of worship. You are always pursuing what you most value. You are giving yourself to what you have determined to be worth the most. What have you determined to be worth the most? He is everything. We've already seen it. Is he everything to us? And if I were to be honest, I, you know, I see more of myself in Israel here than I would like to admit. Difficult circumstances. Things not going as well as we would like, people upset, sickness, you know, whatever it may be for you, we are too quick to think, How have you loved me? Where is the God of justice? What's the prophet? What's the point? And this is the problem. This is the sin. This is the antithesis of worship. And it's actually, of course, still worship, it's just worship of a different object. We are always worshiping. We are wired for worship, created to be worshipers. We cannot help it. You are always worshiping, and ultimately, only one of two things. You're either worshiping the Lord, or you're worshiping yourself. That's it. The ultimate idol is self. The only idol, ultimately, is self. And that's what Israel is worshiping here. This is how we are so often prone to respond to the unchanging, covenant, compassionate God. And it is that point one, who he is and his indescribable goodness and greatness that makes point two, our unloving response to him, the sin that it is. This is not in proportion to this. This is in no way an appropriate response and reflection to this. And this is the sin, the wages of which is death. Okay, for what else would we expect from the rejection of the unchanging, covenant, compassionate God the God of all glory that is rightly concerned with that glory, how are you responding to him? Unloving worship is the chief of sins. It is pride. It is unbelief. What can be done? Good question. (laughs) Point number three. The unfailing messenger. Let me just touch on it and let me wrap it up and finish. Look at the judgment. I want us to feel the weight of our worship problem. Look at 2-2 real fast. I will curse your blessings. Look at two, three. You know what this? Did you know that this was in scripture? You understand what God really thinks about our sin? I will rebuke your offspring. I will spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. Three, five. I will draw near to you for judgment. Four, one. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. You see, the unchanging God is also the just God of judgment. Wrongs must be made right. Sins must be punished. And there is no sin greater than our failure to see and worship him for who he is. And God would be perfectly just to leave it there. We could just stop and he'd be just and he would still be God and he would still be glorious but he doesn't leave it there. Remember, he is not like us. We are not very forgiving. We are not merciful, but he is not like us. And so don't miss the fact that the very existence of this book is evidence of this good God's great grace, for in it he calls to you. Here is your response in chapter 3, verse 7. Here is how you must respond to him. Return to me. Repent, and I will return to you. And after all that, what an offer. Come back. Come back. But what about the sin? What about the infinite gulf between God and His holiness and me and my sinfulness? How could I ever come to Him? Only if He comes to me first. And that's exactly what the unchanging covenant God of compassion did. Amen. That's why 3 1 is so important. Look at it again. The first messenger is John the Baptist. He will come and prepare the way before, before, before me. Before him, who is coming? The Lord himself is coming. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And Malachi doesn't tell us everything that we want to know, but we are mere verses away from Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it is he that Malachi is preparing us for, pointing us to. It is he that is the messenger of the covenant, the new and better covenant bought with his blood. He is, look at chapter 4, verse 17, the son of righteousness that shall rise with healing in its wings. There are here hints and shadows of what God is going to do about his people's problem. Our unimaginably great sin can only be solved by the indescribably great God, and he does it in Christ. This is the gospel, the good news that is our only hope. And it is the infinite gap and gulf between points one and two that makes point three so amazing. And look at what we do and how we respond. I have loved you. We say, how have you loved us? Jesus, right? the messenger. The Messiah, the Lord of life who came to die himself that we might live. That's where you must look. That's where you must turn. That's where worship arises. The unchanging God responds to his people's unloving worship by sending his unfailing messenger. The word of God made flesh. The son of God made flesh to take our sin and take our place and rise again that we might be forgiven. Church. Worship him. Know him. He is the only way. He is the only place where this worship that we so desperately want will be found. Look to him and learn of him and love him and live for him. True worship is never a waste. Jesus is never a bad bet. The infinite God is worthy of your everything. Is the God that you worship, the unchanging covenant God, of compassion. Do you know him as such? Meditate upon him and delight in him for this is who he is. This is the God of Malachi. This is the God of the whole of the scriptures. This is the God that we worship and he is so much better than we think that he is, church. He is not like us but praise God that he loves us. Let me close you uh, in a word of prayer and benediction. Father, please help us do what I cannot. Father, forgive us for our wearying worship. Forgive us for how often we are bored with you. Have mercy on us, Lord. Give us eyes to see the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. And give us great delight and joy in the good news of what he has done so that we might live. Father, we want our lives to more and more reflect who you are and what you've done for us. So please help us. Bless this church. I pray that this would be a place where your glory and your grace is made very clear as you work in the lives of these people. Thank you for tonight, and we thank you for Jesus. Amen.